Hello and welcome to the New Year's Podcast, an auditory exploration of the art of the album. I'm your host, Jonathan Humphrey. Today we will be talking about The Argument by Fugazi, their sixth and at this point final studio album. It was released on October 16th, 2001, and by 2003 the band had gone on indefinite hiatus. Fugazi is and always was Ian Mackay on guitar and vocals, Guy Picciotti on guitar and vocals, Joe Lawley on bass and vocals, and Brendan Cantry on drums. My guest today is my dear friend and frequent collaborator, Raul Clement, and we had a lot to say about this album, so I'm just going to go ahead and move on to the conversation now. I'm sitting here, or on the line, with Raul Clement, and uh, yeah, Raul, here at the top of the show is the moment we like to uh, promote any anything we got going, so go ahead and take your time and promote something. Um, I guess I'm going to promote The Doors You Mark Are Your Own. That's really the only thing I have going on in my life. It's a kind of postmodern sci-fi literary novel I wrote with my good friend, Okla Elliott. It's out on Dark House Press. It's been out since April... If that's your kind of thing, if you're into people like Margaret Atwood, Frank Herbert, William Volman, David Foster Wallace, you might be interested in this book. Um, you can buy it directly through the publisher or on Amazon, any of the major sort of internet sources. I will just take a moment to say that I was, before this book had even been released, I was kind of spreading it around on good faith. And I've, anyone I know that I convinced to buy the book has said nothing but great things. I am like three fourths of the way through it right now. So I've, I've loved it. I, it's hard to find time to read, but it's such a good book. I really highly recommend it to anyone. But anyways, so that, that was a plug, but let's get to the argument by Fugazi. Before we, we talk about meanings and all that, maybe you'd like to tell the audience what your personal history with this album is this particular album it's hard to say um i like a lot of people probably started listening to fugazi in high school i was actually a minor threat fan first they were the first uh, kind of hardcore band i ever heard and it sort of blew my mind that something could be that aggressive and angry so that sort of led me into Fugazi eventually. Um, and of course, I came into it through, like a lot of people do, through songs like Waiting Room, you know, stuff off of 13 Songs and Repeater, some of the early stuff. But then I followed their trajectory and got more and more into them. Yeah, I guess that's about the whole history. I can't really remember when I bought this album, probably right when it came out. At that point, I was a pretty big fan. I had seen them a couple times. I saw them at Mac Rock in Virginia, and I also saw them at the Ritz in Raleigh. The Ritz is in Raleigh, right? Yeah, or it used to be. I think it's a different thing now. But yeah, I have a, a kind of similar thing. Obviously, gotten a minor threat first. I also got into Rites of Spring before Fugazi. You know, the younger, where you're more into the, the three chord kind of punk rock. And then the, my trage- trajectory kind of expanded, and, and I started listening to the early Fugazi, and I, I got really into their deep catalog. I was actually a senior in high school when this album came out, and I definitely bought it like within the first couple weeks that it came out, and was just like, wow, this is... I don't even think it was the last Fugazi album I owned. Like I think I bought other ones later, but you know, you went from the early stuff from 13 songs in the repeater, and then to hearing this, and it's... It's quite a journey from their early work to The Argument, which, as history puts right now, is is their final album. Um, 
I will say that they they toured for the argument before they they went on an indefinite hiatus, and I had plans to go because I had never gotten to see Fugazi before then. But then something came up, and I couldn't go. And then like two weeks later, they're like, Fugazi is on permanent hiatus, and I was like, No, because while their their shows are legendary for being stopped because of Ian's politics and stuff, they're still like one of the music one of the tightest groups of musicians working together. Like the way they would start and stop songs together is so i mean i've since seen live videos of course it's so unique but yeah i think that's pretty much personal histories i got a question that jumps off right at the, as the bat as we go and talk about the title and and the album as a whole obviously in interviews and stuff they've never said this and i don't think it's explicitly in the music but i feel like part of the title itself and even part of this album is a sly nod to the fact that this hiatus was coming I, is that something that you got from it at all i i hadn't really thought of that i mean i did do a little research on it. And what I did find in interviews, I'm sure you've read this, is that Ian talked about it being an anti-war manifesto, having a kind of double meaning, a sort of anti-war argument, but then also war itself as an argument. So I thought that was kind of interesting and cool. Yeah, and I mean, it definitely it definitely reads like that. And I think it's, it's very upfront about that at times. But I feel like there are a lot of more subtle things going on. And I also feel like, because we can keep talking about it, but they said that this was the album they made most in the studio. Like lots of times they came into the studio with the album and then just knocked it out and left. But this album was worked on more in the studio. I think Guy one t- at one time said it was like Legos. Uh, I actually, I have a quote where he, he said... Uh, this is the exact quote that I got from him from an interview, and he's like, There's a song, Full Disclosure, and there's a song, Strange Light. For a long time, they were the same song, but if you listen to the record, they don't sound anything alike. It's hard to imagine that they could have been this length, but for a long time, they were. And then other tracks, such as The Kill, were arranged entirely in the studio. My point of all saying all this is that it seems that this is definitely an album. While, while it is an anti-war manifesto, it's not a very tight concept album, but it is thematically one piece, even though it was kind of created from bits and pieces. Right, right. And there's some songs that clearly fit into the anti-war theme, and then there's some that are very specifically and clearly about something else, like, you know, Cash Out, for example, about eminent domain, you know, and kicking people out of their homes and all that. I don't want to talk too specifically about each song before we actually get to them. Sorry, just come back to what you were saying about the sort of pastiche quality um, and how they kind of, you know, fit things together like Legos. I guess the best example of that to me would be Epic Problem. Definitely, and, and I have some things to say about that that track specifically, but that track especially highlights two almost different sounding songs that somehow snapped together. Yeah, I, I wonder, um, that's interesting. I hadn't read the thing about, I had read the thing about it being, you know, sort of like Legos, and I'd, I'd actually read that quote, but I didn't know that it was so heavily done in the studio. And, you know, they've always struck me as a band that really kind of probably wrote a lot of their music by jamming just because they have this sort of the parts have this quality that they don't feel written they feel like something you'd have to stumble on accidentally i can't identify exactly what that is but there's just there'll be weird things that don't quite fit together and in in my experience as a musician the way you come up with those kind of things is just by messing around rather than if you're sort of composing everything outside of the studio it kind of becomes more sort of neatly fit together 
Uh, well, and there's a, while we're on this topic, just because there's a lot of interesting stuff, one of the reasons that they spent so much time in the studio, and uh, Ian once said that this album, the cost to make this album was between $12,000 and $14,000, which, considering how much studio time they used at the very beginning of the year 2001, like that's that's a reasonable amount of money to produce a studio album of this caliber. Yeah. But, uh, I mean, that's actually cheap. But uh, one of the th- reasons it took so long is because apparently they kept working over and over and over to try to give the drums a different sound than anything they'd heard before. They, they recorded the drums, apparently, in so many different ways. Until I read that, I didn't think anything about it. But then when I went back and listened to the album with that knowledge, there are there's these drums are, ve- are very powerful, but they're also kind of muted. They, have, they do have a sound that I haven't really heard in any kind of post-punk or post-hardcore album since. Yeah, I mean, that's, again, it's, it's something I think probably helps if you have foreknowledge and then you go in with that in mind and listen, because I hadn't really thought about that either. I'm kind of sort of pulling songs out of my memory and thinking about the specific drum parts, and I can totally see that. Um, I forget the song that starts starts with a drum fill. It might be the Lamb or something, or I, I, don't, I don't remember which one it is, but that's what's jumping out to my mind. Yeah, it's life and limb. I think is the the one you're start you're talking about exactly. Um, so yeah, we have a lot of stuff about the war manifesto, an anti-war manifesto, and obviously Fugazi's music has always been socio-political. You know, they're they're the eminent DC band. What else did, would you like to say about the album as a whole? I just wanted to kind of talk about Fugazi's catalog and their progression as artists. Might be that might be worth talking about before. Um, we jump into the specific songs. My personal favorite album is Endheads, but this is not far behind. And it's rare, I think, for me at least, to find an artist or band who consistently gets better and evolves in a positive way over time. A lot of bands that I listen to sort of peak midway through their career, right around the time they have their breakout album. Mm-hmm. I put air quotes. You obviously can't see them, but... Um, you know, right around the time they have their breakout album in quotes is usually like when they peak. And then from then on, it's this sort of decline in creativity and just sort of general fatigue that seems just uh, steep into their music. And I, I don't know if that's a quality of just being a band for too long or just something that age does to your sort of creative process. But it's rare to find a band that just steadily gets better. I can think of a couple of examples. You know, I think... Someone like the Dismemberment Plan might qualify and Arches of a Loaf, but there's tons of counterexamples. Oh, yeah, definitely. Well, and then there's also the not quite the same thing where they, they take a mid-career misstep for a while. Like they release a couple albums and then have to write themselves after those albums. But all this actually brought me to an interesting point. You know, critical reception and ratings are all relative and it's not something we have to focus on. But the fact that you said, you know, they released their breakthrough album. To people like you or I, we might even see something like Repeater as their breakthrough album, as something so imminent in our world. But the argument actually was like 115 on the Billboard Top 100, which doesn't mean as much now, but at the time, that was kind of huge. And as far as independent albums, this album reached number one on Billboard's independent albums. But this, to the wider populace, might actually be Fugazi's breakthrough album. That's interesting. So they broke up before their inevitable decline. (laughs) Well, I mean, who knows? Maybe their decline was just all their solo projects. I'm not going to say that, but I'm sure some people feel that way. Yeah, 
and I haven't really listened to a lot of that stuff. I had the opportunity to see Ian when he came to Gate City Noise. I don't know if you were around for that at New York Pizza, but I think I just didn't bother to get off work. It was uh, whatever band he played in with the female. With his wife. With his wife. I think his, his partner. I don't know if they're married. Actually, interesting story for, well, sorry to interrupt, but while we're on this, he plays with his girlfriend who he has a kid with now. Her name is Amy Farina. And if my sources are correct, that is the sister of Jeff Farina, the lead singer and guitarist of Karate. Oh, nice. That's, it's probably true. I mean, it's not a very common last name. And you got to think that there's some connection between, you know, Karate and Fugazi. So it's not surprising that he would have, you know, met her or whatever. I guess we should maybe move into the songs because we've already been talking for a while and we've actually covered all my points about the album in general. As often when doing this podcast, I, you know, obviously there's certain points you hit for the album, but the, the real meat of it's in, in the songs. So, uh, listeners, we're going to take a break, you know, throw a promo up or something, and we'll be back to do a track by track on Fugazi's The Argument. We're back here on New Year's talking about Fugazi's The Argument. We're about to do the track by track, but before we do that on break, I realized I missed one last point I'd like to uh, bring up about this album. And that is the fact that this is the Fugazi album that has the most guest musicians working on it. Like, usually a Fugazi album is just the four of them. But, I mean, with, like, a little bit of help. But this actually has, like, backing vocals and backing guitar parts and an extra drummer. There are about four different people that help throughout this album, including uh, a member of Bikini Kill. And that's really unusual for Fugazi because, as, as I was saying earlier, they are a very tight four-piece that have worked together as the four of them for quite a while, or did work together for quite a while. I didn't do a lot of research on that. I do remember seeing in the liner notes that there are a couple of female singers, I believe, which is not something that must be kind of buried in the background, because that's not something that I really noticed when I was listening to it. Like, I couldn't even tell you what songs they're on. I, I think I could if I was trying to off the top of my head, but it may become clear as we go on through this track by track. And since we're going to do that, track number one is kind of an intro to this piece. It's, it's untitled, and we're just going to play a little snippet of it real quick. You know, obviously they they use a little bit of sound collage for this intro. There's like police walkie-talkies and and stuff like that going on over a string instrument. Yeah, I, I think it's it's sort of difficult to talk about this song without actually talking about the intro to the the final song, the argument, because I see Cash Out and the Argument as sister songs, and they kind of book into this album. And I see the intro song as sort of just really just part of Cash Out, even though it's a separate track. But if you listen to the beginning of the song, The Argument, it starts out with similar noises, uh, walkie-talkie police kind of thing um, going on. At least that's what it sounded like to me. 
Oh, yeah, I, I definitely think it's like the reprise to the intro at the beginning of the argument. Uh, did you by chance catch anything that was said through the voices of the intro? I didn't really catch anything. I wasn't paying as much attention to that as other parts of the album, but I'm, I'm curious if anything was said of any importance. I mean, I have my headphones on, which usually allows me to hear stuff like that, but it, it was pretty quiet like i would have had to blast it i think it seemed slightly garbled too like you weren't supposed supposed to know exactly what they were saying you were just supposed to get the feeling of it right and you know i mean it has to do with sort of you know i think it's since this album is somewhat a commentary as are many fugazi albums on the police state it's appropriate for them to start this way especially since the next song has to do um you know with forced removal of the people so you can imagine that's something that would be done by cops so i think it's a it's an appropriate lead in to the first sort of real song in the album well, well i agree and i don't i don't think there's very much to say about it it's not it's not very long and it is really kind of the lead into the album and the lead into cash out so why don't we just take a couple seconds and play the audience a little bit of, of cash out This song has such a, a driving bass line. It's actually hard to tell when you listen to it what is bass and what is guitar because there's actually two separate things that sound like bass lines going on. I don't know if one is a guitar with drop tuning or if it's actually two bass lines. I don't know if you noticed that. Uh, I, I know what you're talking about. I couldn't tell you which is which it is, but it definitely there's something going on there that isn't just like a four-string bass by itself. Right, right, right. You know, and it could be either that the tuning is dropped or it's just guitar with um, an octave pedal where they drop it down an octave. It sounded more like that because when you drop tuning, what happens is the strings get kind of loose and a little out of tune. Mm -hmm. So I think it was a drop tuning. Um, So it might just be an effect on the guitar. Um, Either that or it's just, you know, Joe being a genius. Yeah, it could be Joe Lolly being a genius. It could be overdubs, too. Right, yeah, exactly. Um, But it would not surprise me if he's able to somehow play something that sounds like two bass lines at once. To my mind, he was the best musician in the band from a technical standpoint. So I wouldn't put it past him. However, I couldn't exactly figure out what was going on. So you... Like, we can move on to some other points about it. Well, yeah, well, as you were saying, the, this song, Forced Removal of the People, uh, I mean, there's there's a lot of aspects of the same thing going on here. It's habitation versus big business. It's a city growing and yet destroying its own people. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think it's, I don't know what I was going to say. It's oh, oh, one thing I was going to say was that it's interesting because when I was reading people's theories about it online, the, it's a pretty straightforward song lyrically compared to some of them on the album. You know, some songs are a lot harder to parse what they're talking about, but this one's pretty straightforward. But one interesting thing that somebody said was it was about a specific development in D.C. related to some stadium. And that would make sense because he says, look who's buying all their tickets to the game. That could be more metaphorical game, like the game of making money. But 
it wouldn't surprise me if that was literal too. Yeah, I mean, it could it could ju- just as easily be both. I don't know why I never read that line as literal, but now now that you say that, I'm sitting here looking at it, being like, oh yeah, it could just be like, oh you know, take down this impoverished high rise and put up a stadium. Right, and you know that happens all the time in cities, and um, the taxpayers pay for it, and people get kicked out of their houses, and seems like something that would. Uh, piss a guy like Ian off. So. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't seem like a nice way to treat human beings, and uh, I don't think he likes that. Yeah, well, you know, he he's a little opinionated sometimes. We'll, we'll get we'll get to a little bit more about Ian. I have uh, interesting facts about that. Yeah, I, I definitely think this city's like, or this city. <laughs> I think this song is like the nature of the city versus the nature of its citizens, and in a very dark and pessimistic way. Right, and can I just sort of, this is a general statement about the song. I think it's it's got to be one of the best opening tracks I've heard. Yeah, I love when it kicks in at the end too because it is a kind of a, a more soft groove oriented song, and then right at the end it kicks into the really aggressive part. Right, 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 and like no, I just, I just love how it sort of this sets this mood that's very like it's the lyrics are very outraged. But the mood of the song is very mellow and almost like haunted. Yeah. Um, hey, sorry to interrupt, but it's almost like kind of we'll just go with the flow. Right, 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 right. And there's like a kind of bitter irony in it too that I like. Um, that sort of like uh, like that little piggy went to market. You know, is a very sort of it's it's not a humorous line because it's too bitter to be humorous. But I don't really know what I more I have to say about that. But I, I just I think that as a mood setting piece for the album, it really kind of announced this album is going to be different than other Fugazi albums. Well, and on top of that, we're constant. Every song is going to be teetering on two different sides, the soft, kind side, and then the, the angry, I've had enough side. Right, 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 right. Well, I don't, I, you know, I really don't have too much more to say about Cash Out. By saying you think it's the be- one of the best opening songs, are you putting it at a standout track or, or not quite? It's, it's really tough for me to pick standout tracks on this album. That was something I was going to say as a lead-in that I forgot about, but um, I think, you know, I'll be able to do it, but there's at least three or four other songs that I'm like, why isn't that one? You know? <laughs> right, right. Well, uh, I, I definitely have really my- all, even the ones that I, I'll start playing and I'll be like, oh, I don't like this one as much. And then it'll get to a certain part because I think it's because of that sort of Lego pastiche quality. The song will just sort of change radically and I'll be like, oh, I forgot that this was in there. Yeah, oh yeah, definitely. Well, I will go ahead and say that this is not on my standout tracks, but it does not speak ill of the song. I think it's such a good way to start. One of the things I like about the end of of this first song is how it kind of announces that just because Fugazi has been experimenting with softer sounds and are trying new things, it doesn't mean they're tame. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna go ahead and say that this is a standout. Okay. Well, you heard it here first. Raul Clement says that Cash Out is a standout track on Breaking the news. Breaking news, guys. Breaking news. This is- 2001. All right, well, we're going to go ahead and move on to track number three, and the name of this song is Full Disclosure. I will say I could understand anyone hearing the first part of this song and being really annoyed by it. I enjoy it, but I can understand someone being very annoyed by it, by Guy's first couple lines. Yeah, this is not one of my favorite songs on the album, and it's sort of my 
least favorite type of Guy song. So to my mind, he really has, I mean, there's probably more, but he has two major types of songs. He has this sort of soft, breathy one, and then his chaotic, noisy, swirl of sound song. And I tend to like the soft, breathy ones a little bit more. Right. Well, I think the song dances with with that one, but it definitely starts out with the more abrasive sound. I feel like all of this song has a really sarcastic tone. I, it's it's not something he ever says within the song, but I feel like part of the statement of, of the song is, I want to be a clone. Look how easy it is. Yeah, um, you know, I, I wondered about that because I can't really totally make sense of the lyrics. I, I have written down here, it seems like there's an ironic sentiment in the speaker that being Guy, wanting to have his mind taken over. So that's kind of the same idea as yours. But on the other hand, how does that play with the term full disclosure, which is usually a positive term when we think about sort of wanting transparency from our governments or, you know, in the legal system? Well, and I think this that's kind of why it works on two terms. Like, in honesty, what he really wants is, is full honesty from the government or from a legal system. But what he ends up settling for is full transparency in his life. I mean, thought of it that way and it's interesting that it's sort of a kind of obscure chaotic song about the need for transparency yeah sort of disconnect between the music and lyrics it's interesting well i I agree with that 100 percent. i will say one of my my other notes is that even in this song just like we said at the very top of talking about this song is it is very much because the the part that's one of the parts that has backing vocals is the full disclosure when that part's sung over and over again that part is so smooth compared to the jarring start of this song and it's again a, a theme of this album where you take a softer or breathier moment and then put it next to this really aggressive abrasive moment right you know and i think the 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 thing in the beginning where he's just saying i want out over and over again is really effective because it just it's it's frenzied and chaotic feeling and you really do feel like he wants out and then there's this release when it goes into the chorus now i far prefer the chorus of the verses when it gets to that sort of smooth more melodic part but that's just my sort of personal musical preference and i think that the chorus wouldn't be nearly as effective if you didn't have the frenzied chaotic verse before that if you want to call these truly verses and choruses which i don't know that we should when we're talking about fugazi songs at least on this album yeah i mean it's hard to say which whether these are verses or choruses but i will say without that tension and that aggression at the beginning the part where we're calling the refrain the where they repeat full disclosure that is not nearly the release it is it's perfect purposely put there to be a release from the tension of the first part of the song. Right. And I've often argued that to people who don't listen to whole albums, that if there's an album that's well-designed, and this can apply to single songs too, that sometimes I might not even love a specific moment or track, but in the context of the flow of the album, it's necessary to me. And therefore, I'll listen to it and enjoy it within that context. That's why I've sort of never identified with... um, track skippers people who put on an album and listen to the same two songs well yeah and i think again and within the context of the show it's obvious that there is a difference between an album that's a collection of songs and an album that's an artistic piece on its own and i think some people don't appreciate the album as an art but i definitely can hear one song and it changes the way i feel about the song before it or the song after it right exactly you know it's not quite 
as interconnected as a novel or something, but it's more interconnected than maybe a book of short stories to just sort of extend that analogy. You know, with a novel, you really can't just read page 20 to 32, but with an album, you certainly can. Uh, I think that if it's properly designed by the artist and the albums I usually like are, that it's sort of missing something to not listen to the whole thing at least fairly frequently when you you know when you're listening to that artist well i i agree 100 percent. do you have any uh any final thoughts on full disclosure no and i feel like i just went off on a tangent about albums in general but hey that's part of what this podcast is about is it a standout track for you full disclosure it's not it's not a standout track uh i don't I don't have a distaste of the earlier parts as much as you do. I I like them. I love when Guy gets chaotic. I love it. I just have those visions of watching him perform from the and just seeing him do all the crazy stuff he did as a young man. But no, full disclosure is not a standout track to me. But we're gonna move on to track four, and I'm gonna go ahead and play a little bit of Epic Problem. I've got this epic problem. Epic Problem, on the other hand, is a definitive standout track to me. I absolutely adore everything about this song. Yeah, um, I'm going to have to 100% agree, and I, I worry that I'm blowing my load standout track-wise too early because I'm going to name another standout track before too long. <laughs> uh, and so, but then I'm going to regret that once we get to some later songs on the album that are really good. But uh, Epic Problem, I'm sure of. I had to hesitate a little bit more with Cash Out, but this is just one of the more unique-sounding songs I've ever heard. It plays on the half-aggressive, half-soft formula of a lot of the album, but it does so in such a way. There's so much to talk about here, but what I'd like to talk about first is uh, I've got a lot of information about this song because I read a big interview with Ian where he talked for like two pages about this song in particular, but I love the uh, again, it's hard to use the word verse, but I love the telegraph delivery of like the first two verses. Oh yeah, that's something that was pretty it's pretty undebatable to me that it's supposed to mimic a telegraph and I really like how it actually almost it, it mimics a telegraph but it also feels like a conversation like it's somebody saying something banal and false and then with stop it's like the other voice telling them to basically shut up oh yeah I, I definitely get that that feeling too um, well I got a lot of interesting facts and I'll, I'll say some of that stuff and then we'll talk some of the meaning will come out in that and then we'll talk about our own personal meetings but apparently Ian wrote this baseline around 1990 and since he wrote the baseline for this song the band had been trying to find the right song for it until they were in the studio recording the argument so before it was ever had lyrics it was a baseline that they called epic problem because they liked the baseline but they could never make it connect to anything right and then it seems like he wrote the at least the second part of the lyrics based off of that yeah well it's that and also you know you said that ian mckay is uh can be uh you know a pretty intense guy but he was saying you know part of the meaning of this song besides calling it epic problem because it was hard to create into a real song is that you know he's like i'm just this guy and i i get taken out of the wrong way he's like there was this punk band and they had an ep they put out a seven inch and it was just somebody spreading open their asshole like literally that was the picture of the album and they titled the 
album, the Ian Micaiah CD. And so apparently their like publicist or whatever reached out to Ian Micaiah and it was like, it's not about you, you know, it's about, it's about the people that act like you're a god. And his response was, well, if you're putting something out like this and think it won't hurt me, then you're also acting like I'm a god because I'm a human and this hurts. Interesting, interesting. It's funny because the meaning I get about it is that the first part of the song is, is not at all kind of what you were saying that Ian said. No, no, that's that. what I was saying is that that's the second part because he, his, right. his okay. argument was that you guys see me and you think I'm like this strong, I don't care about you guy, I'm standing by my ideals. He was like, I have feelings. I'm, I have a lot of feelings inside. And I think that this song is definitely about, if, if, even if you're looking at whichever part of the song you look at, it's definitely about the disconnect between what people see and reality. As I said, the first part of the song I feel is sort of criticizing sort of false, bland statements. Well, yeah, I mean, the first, one of the first lines of the song is, congratulations, stop. Right, exactly. And then the second part of the song is about how what somebody sees on the outside is not what's going on internally with him. And you've got that line, it's it's all production, it's all illusion, set scenery. Sort of ties into that idea of facade. But yeah, I feel like Epic Problem, one of the beauties of this song is that I feel like anyone could relate it to the way they feel to an extent too. Like, obviously it has a certain meaning to Ian and there's there's a certain themes that we brought up, but I feel like in a lot of ways it's one of those problems where if you just kind of feel a little angry and sad, this song can speak for you without having to say much. Right, right. And uh, on a pure musical level, I just think that the switch from the first part of the song to the second is just so cool. It's that riff that sort of after the first part stops, that sort of lead-in riff uh, is this really driving thing, and then it all drops out, and everything kind of becomes tinny and distant, and I just love that effect, and I don't know exactly how they achieved it. And then it all breaks down to the vocals and, like, the, just the, like, really muted guitar, right? Right, exactly. That's what I'm saying. So beautiful. Right, and then that makes it so much more rocking when the guitar, drums, and all that stuff come in fully, you know, after the part. But it has this sort of weird, um, the first part of the epic problem part has this sort of weird, almost like you're hearing it through a radio in the distance. Well, I think that's part of the point is, is that for a minute it all just seems so distant from you, the listener. Right, right, right. I mean, I, I, I don't know exactly... I haven't thought exactly how that fits in thematically with the lyrics, but just as something when you're listening to, I always love bands that understand how to use dynamics. Mm-hmm. And, oh, we can achieve a lot by going from loud to soft or from soft to loud. Like, I love songs where you have a noisy, distorted chorus and then everything drops out but the bass and vocals for the verse. And I think Fugazi does things like that really well on this album. And this that little bit with the muted guitar and the... The, the sort of tenny singing is an example of that. Oh, yeah, without a doubt. I mean, honestly, I could go on, like, lyrically, it's, it's simple, you know, the verses are, congratulations, stop, we regret to inform, those aren't in the right order, stop, and then he screams accessory for a while, and then it goes into that breakdown, and, you know, again, like, it's lyrically simple, but it just, it spells everything it needs to. And then, you know, he concludes by that he does have this epic problem, but it's not going to be a problem for him. Right, exactly. I could keep sitting here saying, I love Epic Problem. It's one of my, it, it might be one of my top 100 favorite songs ever written, let alone on this album. I think so highly of this song. I definitely put it as one of the top five Fugazi songs. And given that you have 50,000 songs on your computer or something, uh, <laughs> that's, a, that's a big statement. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm glad you pointed that out because I can't. Uh, <laughs> 
But yeah, I think as, unless there's anything else you'd like to say about it, I think we can move on. Uh, no, no. I mean, if you want to just put I love Epic Problem on loop for an hour, yeah. um, I figure we can do that in editing. We can do it like a round. Like I'll say it twice and then you'll say it, you know. Uh, to row, row, row your boat? Yeah, yeah, exactly. All right. <laughs> let's, let's move on to Life and Limb then. All right, yeah. Here's a little bit of Life and Limb. to be honest this one was so close to standout track for me but doesn't quite make it because of the other one it competed with it's a standout track for me and that's what i was saying to you i've already i feel like i'm on a who wants to be a millionaire and i've already used my lifeline <laughs> my 50 50 and yeah and i mean if i had to knock one off the standouts it would be cash out but life and limb is just one of my favorite gee songs ever well, it's it's lyrically playful. It's fun. It's not overly aggressive musically. What meanings do you get out of it? At first, I thought it might be about drug dependency, but then the more I looked at it, I think it might be comparing the national our national addiction to violence to a drug addiction. Oh yeah, I definitely I definitely can see that. And you you get to the refrain. The line is, "Hey, we want our violence doubled, but no, but really in a loving way. Hey, we want our violence doubled, no, but really want it." right away it's like upping the dose it's not it's not about like it's not right. like talking about being violent what is but it's just saying hey more of it more of it please right and that's kind of that line combined with it's murder on the veins don't you feel it now that's sort of what made me think that it might be sort of violence as a national addiction and you mental packer chambers full for no reason mental packer chambers you know indicates a gun but then you have the mental word in there too so it's like you're loading your mind up with violence almost like a drug well and i can say my the other two kind of things i got out of this song tie into that too again this is an anti-war album according to ian and i feel like this is almost a statement about militarism yeah just, i can see that just in general not like any specific thing but it's it's very much about like we live in a country where military class is its own separate thing from civilian class mm -hmm. and that's actually something i have to talk about in the next song and i think that if if we want to see this song is about that that would really tie into uh the kill i don't want to move there too quickly or anything um before we talk about some of the uh, musical aspects of Life and Limb. Yeah, it has a, is, I mean, is it a bass or is it just a very, the do-do-do-do-do-do, like, it is a very, uh, it's quarter notes almost that drives behind everything else, while everything right. else is playing, like, longer notes? I think that's the bass. Yeah. Uh, there's a cool, there's a, I, I don't know if you listen to this album in, uh, in headphones this album uses panning in a really cool way and that's not something you hear a lot anymore now if you listen to albums from the 60s or something like the beatles it was used all the time it's almost annoying if you're listening in headphones and you're slightly deafer in your left ear like i am because <laughs> um, then you'll just uh hear like only the backing vocals and the bass or something um, but this album uses panning in a really cool way 
um, on a lot of songs, uh, this is one that sticks out to my mind. So if you listen to the chorus, there's two guitar parts, um, both of which are really awesome, but one's in your left speaker and one's in your right. And I don't know exactly what to say about the effect that contributes. I, I suppose I would say that it kind of creates this weird swirling sound. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that or if you listen to it in headphones at no, all. I def- I always I always listen to all these albums on headphones. I will say as for podcast listeners, I do highly suggest listening to all music in headphones. At least when you're trying to do a critical listen like we were doing, it does create kind of this very swirling sound and it's very flowing back and forth too. Um I will say the last kind of thought I had about what this song is about is that I feel like, you know, if you were a democrat uh, uh the year or two before this album was released, one of your biggest fears about George W. Bush being released, or released. <laughs> he was released into the world as president. Uh, one of your biggest fears of George... feels that way, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, kind of. He was born <laughs> Like he was, came out of some sort of a special school <laughs> that like, they kept him in. Yep, and, and he was just like, uh, or he'd been like frozen, and he was like Encino Man. Yeah, but yeah, but you know, the fear of the Democrats at the time was that his father was a warmonger, he's going to be a warmonger. Right, and it's eerie, um, and this is something we'll talk about later, but it's eerie how much this album sort of presages um, 9-11, and of course it was released, I think it was released in October of that year. So it actually technically came out after 9-11, but all these songs were recorded before then and written far before that. Oh, yeah. You know, there's no possible way that any of the songs were actually about those events, but they took on way more significance in the years that followed. Let's see what else I was going to say about it. My other notes are sort of <laughs> sort of pointless. Uh, one that I wrote down was how I always heard the lyric as, we want a violent stubble. <laughs> How fun I thought that was. Oh, that's pretty You know, good. when you're like, you listen to an album and you're like, you sing uh, a lyric that you know is wrong, uh-huh. but you've gotten so attached to it. I just picture you singing that now. Uh, listen, listen to it again. It really, really sounds like that. Like, God damn that violent stubble. I think we're ready to move on to the next song. Uh, this is track number six, and it is The Kill. This is the uh, later Fugazi token Joe Lolly song. Yeah, and you know, we call them sort of token songs, but for me, they're often standouts. Well, it, um, it's nice. Joe Lolly's, I mean, Ian and Guy's vocals are both different, but Joe's vocals play a little bit differently than either one of theirs, so it creates this nice break in the album. Right. His songs typically have a very mellow feel. And not surprisingly, they're more bass-driven. I mean, Fugazi's a very bass-driven band to begin with, but his songs especially are real foundation in their bass lines. Yeah, I would agree. You know, you, you were saying that this kind of this song ties into militarism, and I can definitely see that. I don't have too many notes for that, but I, I really basically wrote down four words, and those four words are death penalty or war prisoner. Yeah, I wasn't sure, honestly. Um, I, I, I wasn't sure whether it was um, a critique of the sort of soldier state or if it was critique of the death penalty, because either way, um, I'm not a citizen could make sense. It makes a little more sense if you're 
looking at someone on death row. I feel like the first couple verses make more sense in the context of soldierdom, if that's even a word. Right, you know? right. But then later, of course, when we get to laid out immobile, hoping for that call, it's in my mouth, under my skin, sodium pentothal. Like sodium pentothal is used for lethal injections. The hoping for that call, waiting for that call, all that stuff is, to my mind, could be, you know, the call from the governor. I think it is. I think the first half of the song is more about military life, and the second half is about death penalty, and it's, it is a comparison of the two, even. Right, and it could be if you want to construct a narrative. I don't want to get too literal. Um, I already feel like I maybe did. But if you want to construct a narrative, like... Vets who come back from combat traumatized have been known to, you know, shoot up people or commit violent crimes. So you could look at it as sort of his experience during the war and then his experience on death row. Uh, or, or you can just look at it as sort of two separate thematic things sort of just swirling together. Yeah, kind of juxtaposed over each other. Right. Uh, I will say one thing I do love about this song is I don't, I feel ignorant, like I feel like I should know more, but there's the like sireny pitches. It sounds like it might even just be like some weird guitar feedback, but there's a lot of sound layering in this song specifically that isn't as like in tune with the layering in the other songs on this album. Yeah, I think it's a feedback loop. I know what you're talking about. Yeah. Uh, and I think it's just probably like a guitar held up to an amp to create some feedback and then just put on a loop so that it gets that sort of repetitive siren-like quality. Yeah. But I that for certain. I'm not, you know, an experienced producer. You know, I've been in the studio, I've been in bands, but I don't have a great ear for identifying, you know, what instrument is what instrument or how certain sounds are made, unless they're obvious. Like, I can tell you what a bass line is, for example. Right, and that song is obviously, I'm, distorted isn't the right word, but you're not, you're not supposed to think of that sound as a guitar sound. Right, right, right. And uh, sort of to talk a little bit more about uh, just the musical qualities of, this, of the song, um, that bass line to me is one of my favorite Fugazi bass lines. I just love that little, you know, it's got the low note and it's got the punching high note in between every time. Do, do, do. Yeah. Do, do, do. You know what I'm saying? That's totally out of tune, but you get my point. And I, I think that that rhythmic thing really just drives the song forward. I feel like, this is a term that's come up on this podcast already, but I feel like in a lot of ways, this is the song that has the least amount of aggression in it. So in a lot of ways, it's like the perfect palate cleanser mid-album. Yeah, yeah, I can absolutely see that. Um, and like I said, Joe's songs are often that way. Um, to me, he's kind of like a George Harrison or something. Doesn't write as many songs in the group, but the songs that he does write are really strong and often standout songs for me. I love his songs on Intense as well. I don't know. I mean, I know since you're not a Beatles fan, that's made that analogy maybe doesn't. Uh, we don't. Well. We don't need to get into my feelings about the Beatles too much, but I will say that of all the Beatles, George Harrison is the one I like. Right, and he had you know, and he was the kind of guy who maybe did you know on early albums he didn't write any songs at all, and then on later albums he maybe had a song or two. That's why I was kind of making that comparison. And he's sort of like like Joe. I can see him being sort of a more cult favorite almost yeah. you know uh 
everybody argues about Paul or John, but then that occasional person will come in and say, actually, I like George the best. Right, me. <laughs> and Ian and Guy are such distinct personalities, you know, with their own styles of singing and uh, just sort of character that Joe kind of sort of slips into the background. Yeah. Well, I mean, is there any particular line of this song that we haven't pointed out you think needs to get pointed out or anything else we haven't captured about the kill? Not really. Um, I will say that looking at it more, really every lyric can be read as about being a soldier and every lyric can be read as being about the death penalty depending on how metaphorical you want to get. So I think it's just it's interesting. I think that both interpretations are probably valid and on some level, and it's it's kind of cool to just not know. Well, yeah, and, and definitely, like, obviously, the title lends itself to either one of them. Right, right, right. It's the kill of the speaker, or it's a kill that... Because when I pictured it being about a soldier, I pictured him sort of just crouched in a field, laying in this cold field, right? And then when sort of... I. I think I got them all, like it's him sniping out the enemy. So it, it can work from that perspective, or the kill can be, as I said, about what's going to happen to him. Yeah. Well, let's go ahead and play a little clip here of the next track, which is Strange Light. So Strange Light is the song that beat out Life and Limb for my second standout track. I don't I don't know what it is. Maybe it's Fugazi using a piano for one of the few times in their career. There's something about Guy's delivery in this song. It's just the lyrics of this song. Everything about it, it's the slow, creepy chill. Yeah, it's 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 a really haunting song. And I feel like for me it would be the, the song that would replace Cash Out if I had to make a replacement. Yeah, that sort of the way the vocals play over the guitar in the beginning and it, it's kind of a little arrhythmic in the beginning and I really like that and then of course just looking at the lyrics the way it sort of describes what to me is almost like a post-nuclear war apocalyptic wasteland I don't know if you got that I mean the moment you said that I was like oh yeah but that's actually not what I got from this song at all but but talk more about that and then we'll go into what I got out of it the reason I got that was um, because of nothing grows right anymore scars on every stalk and temperature whatever degrees creates the bad thing and then it's hard to punch the clock on the site where production stopped so it's basically just all industry and civilization has been sort of destroyed i don't know why i thought it was nuclear war more than some like drought or something like that so it could be more just about environmental concerns possibly but something about the sort of belighted landscape it described you know you can even see a hundred plans to fortify beige concrete foes on for miles hiding cities under it that could be like people going underground to sort of save themselves from nuclear poisoning and war i'm sure if i was in a room with Guy and i expressed this all to him he'd be like yeah maybe you're taking it a little too literally but well no i think i think all those are good points I'll, let me tell you i had two different thoughts about this so you you cited very early the line it's hard to punch the clock on the site where production stopped and that line also kind of in, lended itself to my interpretation of the song 
and that I feel like this song is about the McDonaldization of the world. It's about globalization, and because of that, we're looking at the American cultural empire, and we're not an industrial nation anymore. We don't make things. All those warehouses and factories, I mean, not all of them are closed, but a big number of them have closed. Our whole society has has completely turned over from that side. And that also kind of ties in with the environmental aspects of that, too. Yeah, yeah, I can totally see that. And that would make sense, actually, in the context of a few of the later songs, which I think also touch on imperialism and global capitalism, you know, specifically the next song, but I think maybe even a couple after that. So I, I could certainly I could certainly see that. And I mean, what do you think of the last part? Because I can't tie it into the the other lyrics at all. I think the last part is is like the hopeful part of the song to me. It's like all this terrible stuff is happening, but get your shoes on. Come on over. Let's be together. For If we're looking at this as like a nuclear attack, that's kind of like, let's be together at the end of the world. Right, right, right. I mean, it works in your interpretation too. And it's interesting because not only does the... Does the lyrical content change dramatically? The musical content does too. And I love that last part, but just like an epic problem, it feels almost like a different song. Oh yeah, and like we like we said at the top, apparently Strange Light and The Kill were apparently one song at one point in time. I thought it was Strange Light and Full Disclosure. Oh, you're, you might be right here. Let me go back to my notes. Yeah, it's Full Disclosure and Strange Light, which is still an odd pairing. Yeah, that's very surprising um, because depending on which, which part of Full Disclosure they're talking about, I could see the chorus of Full Disclosure fitting in a little bit better with Strange Light, but that chaotic part would be a very big sort of jump in styles, like an even bigger jump than you actually see in any of the songs. Maybe that's why they broke it apart. <laughs> My last note about this is kind of is more of a personal thing and not pull, putting the whole context of the song through. But when I think of just that very first line, I don't even think not even thinking about that nothing grows right anymore. But just almost like isolating just the very first line of the song that the sun's a strange light. To me, parts of this song, even though they obviously have social and political and e- economic meanings, is almost very much like the sun is is kind of a strange thing you know do, do we cast a shadow on the sun's existence or does the sun cast a shadow on our existence yeah i mean that gets a little more abstract than i was making the you know song for sure but you can definitely see some personal elements in the song that are maybe not about you know something specific like globalization or environmentalism or nuclear holocaust things like i'm just a warehouse filled with junk some some things for some ones, some some ones, uh, but is almost just like he's talking about all these useless memories and thoughts in his head he has. So that sort of lends itself to a much more metaphorical and personal interpretation. Yeah, definitely. But yeah, I definitely think this is a standout track. I, d- I love everything about it. It is one of the softer Gee songs and it works. It Like you were saying earlier, he uses that breathy voice and it really works with the eeriness of the song. So your standouts have been Epic Problem and Strange Light. I yeah. can get behind that. I can get behind that for sure. I think we both agree Epic Problem is just hard to mess with. Right. I'm going to go with Epic Problem, Life and Limb, but then I'm going to do a Strange Light slash Cash Out, which is a cop out. It sounds like cash out, but um, anyway, I think we should move on because we still got four songs to cover. Let's take another break real quick. We'll be right back.
And we're now back to uh, wrap up the last part of Fugazi's The Argument. We still got a few tracks to go. Before we uh, start talking, why don't we go ahead and play the audience a little bit of... Uh, If you looked at Strange Light about globalization, then it ties into this song a whole lot, from my perspective at least. Oh, absolutely. And I think I did mention that, that if we sort of took your interpretation, then you could see why Fugazi would have put the two songs next to each other. I mean, this one is very explicitly about that. There's no hidden subtle subtleties about it. It is about globalization. I could, I could also see it being about corporate sociopathy and uh, corruption within a major corporation, like a kind of Enron situation almost. Definitely the whole like U.S. economy at that time, even. Right, and you know this whole "your secrets out" is what kind of led me to that interpretation. And lap of luxury, lapping waste, cruising towards a bruising crash, sort of presages uh, this sort of various stock market crashes. And uh, this is obviously much later, but the uh, uh, housing market bubble burst. I think that uh, Enron was actually around this time. Yeah, it was uh, right around this time. I think it might have been even 2000 or something. It could have predated the lyrics of this song, depending on when they wrote the lyrics. Though I know Fugazi worked on songs for a long time. But if you said they were working on stuff still in the studio, it's possible that lyrics didn't happen until later. I will say, uh, there's a lot of, lot of stuff to say about this, but there's just this one line. I love his, his delivery of it, too, in the song, where the line is, When the letter returns to the sender, I can hardly... Hardly wait. Yeah. I just love, I mean, it's such a great little turn of phrase. My college roommate, Paul Nair, um, was a big Fugazi fan, and we would always just sort of joke about Guyanian's delivery and their personalities and stuff. And one lyric that always uh, cracked us up is that I'm pissing on your modems. Yeah, I do love that line. I mean, that's just him saying it is just hilarious to me. But uh, bringing up that lyric, that stuff almost makes me picture a kind of Patrick Bateman-like character, if you've ever seen or read American Psycho. This sort of guy who's inside of the corporate world, but is slowly sort of sabotaging it from within um because the sort of the whole memo to the partners indicates to me that it's sort of from the perspective of somebody who's important in a company right right and i'm changing all the locks i'm pissing on your modems i'm shredding all the stocks sort of indicates that he wants to bring it all down now let me along this this logic let me ask you do you think those like last three i, I hesitate to call them stanzas i guess they are stanzas those last three stanzas do you think that's a narrator shift or a position shift you know the part where he's like thank you may i have another i will be your eager driver your service provider your major d yeah so i would say i think it's a perspective switch because you've got an entirely different singer coming in and tonally the song changes and i, I I look at it as the last part's almost from the perspective of an ordinary person who is taking his sort of beatings because of 
you know, the sort of the injustices that the corporate world creates. Yo, yeah, and that makes perfect sense. And of course, that line is kind of a, a reference to Animal House or yeah, absolutely, absolutely fraternity life. Thank you, sir. May I have another? And it's this sort of uh, there's an irony in it, a sort of masochism that that speaker has. But I I don't think you're supposed to interpret it literally as he actually wants another lashing or beating or whatever. I think it's 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 more critique of the way we kind of just sit there and accept this basically corporate crime. Oh no, I I agree completely. I think I think that's entirely what it is and and you know, it's also about like and in another way it's it's how corporate criminals look at the common man like you should be thankful for the shit you get. Yeah, yeah, you should be thanking me. You know, almost um, anyway, uh, cool. Well, let me grab my notes real quick. Yeah, I don't, I don't have any other uh, notes about O. Oh, if, if you do, then this is the time for him. And if not, we'll move on. I think it's about it. I would just say it's a weird, this just occurred to me, but isn't it a weird, like, totally nondescript title for it to have? I, yeah, I do wonder how they came across. Now, we're saying O, obviously not, well, not obviously. It's not the letter O, it's the word O as in O-H. And it is kind of a, it's a very nondescript, almost apathetic title. Right, yeah, like they just couldn't come up with anything better, so they just called it O. I will say really quickly, we're going to go ahead and play the next song. But I definitely have one more standout track coming, but I will say I feel like this whole album is great. But if there is a weak point on this album, this is about where we hit it after O. And so let's go ahead and play a little bit of Expected. I feel like the question that X Spectator asks is if anyone can truly be an innocent bystander. Right, right. And to me, it's about, I keep saying the speaker because that's the term people use in poetry. And I don't really know what to do for lyrics because they're often more autobiographical. But it's almost about the shift in the speaker's mentality from a passive observer to a participant, right? To somebody who really is living his politics instead of just observing things from the sideline. Oh yeah, definitely. And they're they're getting involved because they realize they even by just sitting there and watching they were saying something. Right, absolutely. It's, it's kind of like the uh, Heisenberg uncertainty principle. Is that where you change an experiment by observing it? Exactly. Like, live television is one of the biggest experiments of all of the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. The very thought that an event will be filmed will change what happens at that event. Yeah, you know, and uh, it's uh, there's a lot of uh, theoretical stuff you could get in when uh, into when you're talking about this. Uh, there's been a lot of um, social commentary and philosophy written on this subject. One thing that I pulled up that one listener had referenced was a, a, a book called The Society of Spectacle. Oh, yeah. I don't really remember the author. It's a, it's a famous philosopher. Is it Guy Debord? Yeah, yeah, that's, that's totally correct. Um, and he talks about how our lives now are sort of mere simulacra, you know, or is it simulacrum is the singular? It doesn't matter. But the point, though, is that everything is almost 
a symbolic representation of itself, and it's hard to get to anything real, caused sort of by our culture of commodity fetishism and you know, as a sort of consumerism. Go on. Well, yeah, all that kind of ties into my other my other thought about this song. I find this happens a lot in bands that write a lot of political music, is that, you know, eventually you kind of have to take the I out of it, and I feel like a lot of this song is talking about mathematics and sciences, and it's it's talking about the human experience minus the human. Right. No, and that's that's interesting. Uh, you know, you have the geometry, um, and then you have the architects and engineers. You have the writer. Right. Right. Exactly. And the, that writer could be a reference to a specific philosopher. For all I know, it does sound like a common postmodernist philosoph- philosophical question that you might hear. Well, yeah, because, I mean, and that's the line that, for, for the listener, you know, we haven't been reading too many lines out loud for this episode, but I think this one is very good. It's, uh, here's some questions that the writer sent. Can an observer be a participant? Have I seen too much? Does it count if it doesn't touch? There's there's profundity in that, I think, and... Is not one of my favorite songs. I really do like the lyrics, though. Oh yeah, I, and again, I like I said, I think this is one of the weaker moments of the album, and I don't think it's bad, but it is. It isn't one of my favorite songs, but it has a very valid point and very valid lyrics to it. I think you see in this album what you see in a lot of albums is the artists recognizing the weaker songs and burying them a little bit. Albums I feel like tend to start strong and end with a strong song, but often the few tracks before the end will be not necessarily standouts and I feel that way about Expectator and the next one. I I agree. I feel the exact same way. Not that they're bad songs, but compared to the strength that this whole album has been, these two songs are definitely the low points for me. I don't really have anything else to say about Expectator. You want to move on to the next one? Yeah. Alright, well, we're going to go ahead and play a little clip of Night Shot. I do feel like this song is also kind of an extension of O. Yeah, I also feel weirdly that it's an extension of um, Expectator because I can I, I think you can read it as the search for something real in a um, corporate society. So I feel, excuse me, a sort of to for fun intertextuality, sort of like Fugazi's "I'm All Lost in the Supermarket." Exactly. So in a way, it ties into both this and O because it is talking about corporate society, I think, and consumerism, but. The con- so the consumerism theme is more coming out of the previous song, whereas uh, the corporate theme is coming out of O. Well, yeah, and then they're like the kind of the breakdown refrain of this song is, I've got no patience, no way stationed, hanging at the night shop, eating shit. And it's almost that same kind of thought line that, thank you, sir, may I have another. Like, I'm just sitting here taking what I'm given. Right, absolutely. And uh, the night shop is just, I don't know, to me it's some shitty fast food restaurant or something. Uh, um, because you have the sort of the line while your next meal is calling loosely trademarked as the best fucking thing you've ever had. Sorry, it was 
broken up in weird ways. Loosely trademarked is the best fucking thing you've ever had inside your mouth. Right. So, um, the McRib is back. Right, exactly. To me, that's about McDonald's or something like that. And so that's what the night shop is. I mean, you don't have to see it as about a specific place, but it's just about how we're sold a bill of goods by advertising. And that's pretty much all we have. Right, exactly. Oh, I like the line, um, is capitals incontinence causing you embarrassment? Oh, yeah, that is a great line. The wet spot on the carpet that you leave. Right, yeah. As a reminder that you need. Yeah, it's just, I, I think you could put a period there as the reminder that you need. And it, it reminds me, that reminds me of a song like Merchandise, which obviously is a lot more explicit what it's talking about, but just, <clears throat> you know, this anti-consumerist theme that Fugazi has really had going through their entire career and has even determined the way they've marketed their own music the way that they sold tickets for their shows. You know, you see it in songs like Five Corporations. You see it in songs like Merchandise. What's that other one that's early? Greed or something like that. Oh, that yeah. Anyway. Um, well, also, you can even say uh, similar but different, like a song like Styrofoam is Environment versus The Corporation. And right. one of my personal favorite early Fugazi songs, Blueprint. Yeah, that's a great one. But that also is about never mind what you're selling, it's what you're buying. Right. Absolutely. And I think feel like that's been one of their biggest political themes is a capitalist critique and i don't think any one of them says that well i don't i don't want to put words in their mouth but i don't think they're saying that you know one question in this interview i read with ian earlier what he someone asked him was like well you know you have have these very big convictions about how much you charge for stuff and he's like have you found it hard to live and he's like i'm a frugal guy i'm not cheap but i see lives filled with waste and i don't need as much to live a fulfilling life absolutely and I'm sure that they're not really hurting for money. You know, when you have their sort of record label ventures along with their album sales, along with uh, touring and stuff, they might be hurting a little bit more now because none of them have been in as popular a group since, you know, their hiatus. I mean, technically, uh, Joe Lolly did do a lot of work for the Red Hot Chili Peppers guitarist. Oh, I did not know that. Yeah, that... John Frusciante or whatever, Joe Lolly's like all over his solo album. Nice. That probably paid him more than he made <laughs> off of all the Fugazi albums combined. <laughs> probably. Uh, that's cool. I don't really have much interest in listening to a John Frusciante album, but that helps my interest slightly. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure the bass lines are awesome on it. Right, exactly. And I mean, he's he's a very inventive guitarist. Anyway, um, I think that we're going a little off tangent. And oh, we, we I, definitely I, are. We definitely are. This is maybe my least favorite song on the album. Um, I don't have a lot more to say about it. No, I don't really either. I'll tell you what. Why don't we go ahead and, and, and mosey on down to the title track, the very last song. Let's go ahead and get a little bit of argument. I'm sure for any listener that's doing math or keeping track right now, they will realize that the title track of The Argument is my last standout track. Yeah, and I totally understand that position. You want to argue about it? Yeah, we should uh, definitely go to war over it. <laughs> of course. Uh, if, if the argument is a uh, metaphor for war. But yeah, no, the... Uh, 
it's interesting because it is the title track, but they dropped the word the. I just noticed that. Yeah, yeah, me too. And and how rare is it that the title track is the last song on the album? Yeah, I mean, a lot of times you'll see it as the opening song. I mean, I, I don't know that I have like a keen sense of where it's usually placed, but I feel like it's the opening song or usually within the first four. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. I feel like it's, if not always, you know, there's no rules to it, but I feel like a lot of time if, if an album has a title track, it is tracks one through four. In retrospect, it's really fitting that they sort of closed their career with this. Oh, uh, I, I agree. That's kind of what well, we're coming a little full circle, but that's kind of what I meant at the beginning when I was like, did you see the title of this album as somewhat of a like point to the hiatus? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't know. The... I mean, I don't know how much they were aware of it or not, but I can't think of many bands, as I said earlier, that went out on such a high note, not just with the whole album, but with that final song. I mean, that's their final song, you know what I mean? Um, Okay, we should go ahead and state that if one of the four members of Fugazi dies, we know for sure that this is their final song. Until then, it may not be their final song, but it certainly is their last song in almost two decades at this point. Yeah, I mean, okay, they're on indefinite hiatus, but at a certain point, when it's been 12 years, you start to think that uh, it might be definite hiatus. (laughs) Right. From what I've read, all the members refuse to say that Fugazi is broken up, that they're just on hiatus. Right, and I think that, uh, I can't remember who it was, if it was, I, th- I want to say it was Joe or somebody, it wasn't Ian, it wasn't Key, I guess, but talked about them possibly, you know, getting back together as recently as 2012, which is still three years ago. And he said, oh, yeah, if we did that, you know, we'd want to take some time to get reaccustomed to playing with each other and really assemble some good material. You know, it's possible that there's some behind-the-scenes stuff going on that we don't know about, but as of now, it doesn't seem like anything's going to happen. What I read in the Ian interview, which was kind of recent, not incredibly recent, was he's like, I love all the members of Fugazi. We're all still close friends. He's, I think Joe lives in Europe now. What? It's either Joe or Brendan lives in Europe now, and it's like, we'd have to have a reason for him to come into the country and start playing together. And he's like, you know, I know like music festivals these days, the big thing is for bands to reunite there, and they've offered us a lot of money, but if Fugazi reunites, it's not going to be about the money. Which is kind of re- reassuring, because I've had, and I don't blame him, but I've had one of my favorite musicians ever flat out say about one of his first bands reunion he's like if your favorite band is getting back together after 10 plus years they need some money right absolutely and it it, it becomes a little bit of a sad thing um because often those bands get back together but they're not really back together they don't write any new music they're just four guys or whatever their the band's makeup happens to be on a stage playing old songs Yeah, exactly. At 55 years old or whatever they are. And there's something a little discouraging about that because there's no creativity involved in a way. It's just almost like them performing covers of their past selves. Well, before we keep talking about Fugazi being on hiatus, let's let's actually go around to the song. I do feel like, in lots of ways, this song is, uh, it's not exact, this isn't the only point of this song, but obviously there's a uh, remnants of the theme, and I, I bring this up specifically knowing that I'm talking to you, but remnants of the themes of Jawbreaker's Boxcar. Okay, okay, I haven't thought about that. Uh, well, I mean, it's specifically like... There's the line that some punk could argue or whatever. Sorry, I have the lyrics. The exact line is, it's all about strikes now, so here's what's striking me, that some punk could argue some moral ABCs. Which is kind of like the whole, like, you're no punk and I'm telling everyone. Okay, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Um, And I did notice that it was, 
I thought it was interesting that they used the word punk. And a little telling because this song can also be seen as one of the stronger anti-war manifestos on the album. Oh yes, without a doubt. But the fact that they use punk when they that's the background they come from. I mean, I know punk has that, you know, other meaning like whatever, oh look at that young punk or whatever, right? But but you wouldn't be the lead singer of Minor Threat and then using it in that. Right, exactly. So I have to think he was using at it for its double meaning. Because clearly he is sort of making use of that pejorative, but he also probably is referencing the scene he came out of. And I wonder if it's like the war metaphor somehow comes into his critique of the music scene. Well, I think it does. I think I think there's a lot of battles within I mean, that's one of the notorious problems with punk as it went on is that it became a lot of infighting. Another really, this is like a not very important point at all, but I'd like to point out, I love the use of fodderall in this song. How often do you hear the word fodderall anymore? Um, I pretty much would say never. I, not, not a song that I can think of. I love the word, yeah, no, I love the word and I think it's great. I will also say this is just a funny little, little note and it's just humorous to me, but uh, everywhere that I looked at stuff about the song online, if there were comments, the comments turned into an argument. Oh yeah, that was, that was funny. Um, on song meetings, most of the songs had, say, between five and ten comments. And most of them were like actually debating meaning and stuff. Right, and that one had, 34, and they were all about whether, I don't even know what they were really about. They were about whether Fugazi was good or not. Or they were mainstream or not. Or they were not. Whether it was good that they weren't mainstream, whether that sort of anti-mainstream stance was self-defeating and sort of, there was some ridiculous stuff like that somehow by Fugazi being so anti-mainstream, they had limited the quality of mainstream music because if they got their music out there in the mainstream, then other bands would have been able to follow them. But that's absurd to me because there's no way Fugazi was ever going to be a mainstream band. No, no, not at all. I mean, listen to them. They're not... I mean, this album, understandably, could break into the mainstream more than other albums, for sure. Right, right, but it's still not going to be, like, played on... My mom's not going to listen to the first half of Epic Problem. Absolutely not, and, um, you know, they're they're bands that that are indie bands that absolutely have mainstream qualities, and, you know, it's not surprising to just pick a random example that Green Day became huge. If you listen to their early albums, yes, they were punk, but they were basically a pop band. Oh, yeah, they always had the pop sensibilities. Right, you know, and it's really the stuff off of Slappy Hours and stuff is not that different than the stuff on Dookie. No, no, not at all. Dookie's a little bit better recorded, that's all. Um, Way more polished. Exactly. So the idea that somehow Fugazi could have forwarded the growth of post-punk or even more generally indie rock or something by letting themselves be promoted more is just silly to me. Like, probably what would have happened is what happened to Jawbreaker or Dismemberment Plan. They would have gotten on a major label and been dropped after one album. Yeah, that's very likely. Well, hey, we're getting close to talking about last-minute stuff, so is there any kind of particular point you'd like to raise about the song argument before we, we get into the last bit? I, I think I already mentioned how it, how nicely it pairs with Cash Out. Oh, yeah, and it's such a way to end... The, we, we were already saying, but it's such a way to end the album. It's the perfect way. And 
it doesn't ever quite get it loud or aggressive in this song, but at the end it does have that part where Ian actually yells and it kicks up a little right. bit. And it's it's a very effective closer. And then there's a repetition of here comes the argument, you know. Um, I, I love that, and that just sort of sticks in your head. And when the album, when you shut off the album, that's still kind of going through your head. And it sort of just makes you think about the themes of the album as a whole. Anyway, yeah, I would just say that this and Cash Out are just brilliant bookends to an album. They have that such a sort of mellow, unique feel that really kind of they really fit together. Yeah, no, they definitely they definitely do. And like we said earlier, the intro to the album also has like a reprise or whatever. That's the start to this right. song. Yeah, again, for for purposes of discussion, I've just been treating the intro as part of Cash Out. Right. It's it's, it's really not a song. But anyway, I think that that's. All I have to say about it, we've already kind of talked more generally about the anti-war themes and stuff that I see going on with this song that went, you know, that were visible in the kill and strange light as well. Yeah, I guess that sort of sums up that song. Well, I I will say that if this album is Fugazi's swan song, it's sad to me that there'll never be another Fugazi album, but I feel like you couldn't have picked a better album to end on. It was a hell of a swan. It was a hell of a swan. It was a super swan. I, I feel like we we kind of covered everything here. Cool. Um, so are we giving any sort of concluding thoughts? Yeah, or? yeah. Please, by by all all means, give give a concluding thought. One little thing that we hadn't mentioned was it's usually even for really creative bands, I can usually pull some clear influences from their sound. Now, Fugazi really has to be one of the most original, I forget whether you can use, whether you can intensify the word original like that, but I don't care. Uh, one of the most original bands that's ever existed. I mean, what what would you say their influences are? I mean, I'm going to cheat a little bit here. I can't say that, I, it's hard to tell, but you can definitely see what he was talking about on, on the two EPs that make up 13 songs. But when Ian Micaiah said when he created Fugazi, his goal was to mix Iggy Pop and the Stooges and dub music. Interesting. I mean, I can see, I was going to reference dub music with the bass line. Well, yeah, with the bass and the drums both, there's a heavy dub influence. And poor Brendan, we haven't talked about him at all. He's a hell of a drummer. I love that he has the Liberty Bell replica that he plays with. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, And I love, I don't know, he plays with a certain sloppy looseness sometimes. It actually works. There's a song I'm thinking of on uh, End Hits that starts with a fill that's like totally out of time, but it's deliberate. And it's like really hard hitting. Um, And it's clear that they left it there because they liked it. I don't know if he messed up or not. I don't think he did because when I've seen it live, it sounded the same. Well, that's something else I'd like to say about his drumming style too, though, is that for as aggressive as the drums can be in a Fugazi album, and they're not always aggressive because they do aggressive. They're not always aggressive because they use a lot of dub styles, but as aggressive as they can be, they're also really relaxed. Right, right, right. And I think that's kind of what I'm talking about when I say looseness. It's not, it's not being like out of time or anything like that it's just some people play really precise and choppy almost he plays with a sort of if you listen to like jazz drummers or something they typically play very loosely and that's that's the only way i can really think to explain it now joe is super precise when i saw him live when i saw them live i really gravitated towards watching him because i am a bass player but 
and I just love his bass lines, but one thing that just really impressed me was how good his mechanics and slash technique are. I mean, I, that's maybe not the most interesting thing to get into, but his fingers barely move. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what you want to do as a musician. The less effort you put into it, the less wasted motion, I should say, not effort, the, the better you're going to play. I definitely, I definitely can see that. But so come, come back to the influences. Sorry, we got off on a little tangent there. Um, so dubstep, Stooges, but I really feel like they got away from that on later albums. Oh, they got away from that by by even the third album, I would argue. Right. Well, that's if we're including 13 songs as an album or not. But like these later albums have, like what do they have? They have a kind of, like especially in Joe's songs and things like that, they have almost like a psychedelic feel or something. Maybe not psychedelic, but like kind of like Velvet Underground. Yeah, heroin chic yeah exactly um which is odd since they're so staunchly anti-drugs to the point where I, when i saw ian at a house party where q and not you was playing i feel like he was just walking around glowering at everybody drinking <laughs> beer i mean i'm probably just making that up but anyway yeah i think that there was a definite shift in tone away from that kind of punker earlier sound yeah they definitely I mean, his mission statement may have been to be Iggy Pop meets Dub, but it became something different very quickly. And then you got to remember that for most of their early practices, Guy was just a dude showing up. Like, he wasn't actually technically a member of the band. He And then he became, like, the way he started was he was the Flav of Flav of the band. Right. And then he just, they were just like, well, we can't lose Guy. He's awesome. Let's have a second guitarist and a second vocalist. Right, yeah. So the, he was like, he was the guy who would come in and be like, merchandise! <laughs> yeah, right, right. Well, and I will I will say this on the... Uh, Whatever, you know. Yeah, yeah. I will say this on the uh, topic of influences. You know, obviously most people know Fugazi through Minor Threat. Some people know Fugazi through Rites of Spring. But I will say of all the bands that all the members of Fugazi were in before Fugazi, the only one that comes even close to what Fugazi would be for me is this one called Happy Go Licky. And that's Guy and Brendan and two other people, including Eli Janney. But they never released a studio album. It was only chaotic live performances through a course of a year. Interesting. Yeah, I, I have uh, listened to a little bit of that, but a long time ago. And I don't really think I thought about who kind of had had the biggest influence on Fugazi's sound. In a way, the reason I made the Beatles comparison earlier was that I feel like they're one of those rare bands that has three songwriters, not that, you know, Brendan's, you know, had nothing to do with it or anything, but has three songwriters that really come from different backgrounds and mesh together into a single sound. And that's what made them interesting. Yeah, I can definitely, definitely see that. Well, I, I think our time is uh, coming to the, close to an end. I really don't have anything else I need to say about the argument at this point in time. Any last thoughts? Uh, no, not at all. Um, we've probably taxed the listener's patience at this point with our over two hours of speaking. But as you said, um, you could talk about Epic Problem all night. Well, I could just keep talking about Fugazi. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah, and and that's one thing is, you know, if you're a listener of this podcast and you have like what you've heard of the samples or you listen to this album beforehand, the Fugazi discography is good from start to finish. Absolutely. I, I mean, my personal favorites are the later albums. I really feel like Red Medicine, End Hits, 
and uh, the argument should be grouped together, just the way the, the way they sound. But in on the kill takers, fantastic. I, I still love Repeater. I put I think Repeater is one of my favorite albums. Right, and that's a lot of people's favorite. And I'm also with you. I love End Hits. End Hits is without a doubt my absolute favorite Fugazi album. But I also feel like the argument is more of an ar- an album album than End Hits. Right, it's more of an argument. Yeah, and I, it's it's cool to also cover a band's final album you know covering a band's first album or their final album um seems sort of a better symbolic way to talk about their career than maybe just picking a middle album yeah oh definitely without a doubt well rubble thanks so much for being here and talking fugazi with me uh no problem it was uh, a lot of fun all right well i'm sure you'll be back and we'll be talking about another album soon yep That wraps up our conversation on The Argument, but Raul and I have already recorded a conversation about the newest album from members of Fugazi, the self-titled Kuroki album. In the next few weeks, we'll have a sneak peek bonus episode where we kind of talk about Discord Records as a whole and bridge the gap between Fugazi and Kuroki, so make sure to check that out. You know, stay subscribed to the feed and check out our show info notes where to reach us. We'd love to hear from you, whether on Facebook or email. Tell us what you think about the albums. Tell us about what you think about the show. Tell us albums you want to hear covered. In the next couple episodes of the New Year's podcast, the format's going to change a little bit. I was lucky to be a guest on the Beast in the Maze podcast for two episodes where they go through and talk about Iron Maiden and Fish, and I thought it'd be good to put those episodes here so you can hear them. Next month, we'll be talking about Fish as the Story of the Ghost, and the format will be a little bit different, but keep it tuned and definitely check out Beast in the Maze podcast in the meantime if you want. Thanks for listening. production and part of the abandoned mascot network a loose affiliation of podcasts for media arts creators and connoisseurs for more information follow us on twitter at abandoned masco one that's abandoned m-a-s-c-o and the number one thanks for listening